for the rest of our time this morning, I do want to invite us to open our Bibles. We're going to hear from the scriptures today. We're going to continue on in our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you have your copy of the scriptures, I want to invite you to turn with me to chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. We got a lot of ground to cover. Last week, uh, we, we talked about chapter 8. I taught through all of chapter 8 last week. It was 13 verses. I talked about for about 40 minutes. This week, we have 27 verses, so you do the math, so we'll, we'll be here for a little bit longer maybe, hopefully not. Um, but for this morning, maybe to start off, let me start with a question, just to kind of get us going here. And the question is this. When in your life, or when in life in general, have you felt the most free? Like just no restrictions, nothing. You've just felt the most freedom, you know, in any sort of life circumstance. What would that circumstance, what would that, that time period, what would that ideal be for you? Maybe if you're watching this morning, maybe just chat with the person that you're with, or maybe if you're by yourself, text someone, or just kind of, what would that be for you? Maybe a time for you where you felt the most free was maybe at the end of a hike, you're at the top of a beautiful mountain, and you can just see 360 degrees all the way around. There's you know, no one around you, and you are just out in nature, and you just feel the freedom, you feel the openness, and you just love it. Or maybe for you, it's you're out in the ocean or out you know, in nature somewhere. Or maybe for you, it's that, that, that moment where you close your computer because you're going to go on vacation for two weeks and you have that automatic vacation responder on your email and you know that no one can get a hold of you for you know, however long that's going to be. You have this sense of like freedom. I'm, I'm, I'm out. I'm good. Um, and so I don't know. What, what might that be for you? You know, what's interesting for me at least, when I think about this idea of freedom and what it means to be a free person or to have you know, no restrictions, one of the things that keeps coming to mind for me is just this idea of exactly that, no restrictions, no one telling me what to do, right? And I think that's a lot of, for a lot of us, that's how we might think about freedom. This idea of just being able to do whatever we want to do and just kind of live life without anyone restricting us in any sort of way. You know, one uh, really important idea behind this is that for freedom in our culture, we think often about freedom as just this idea of being able to do whatever we want to do. In fact, a Supreme Court Justice, Anthony Kennedy, said this, at the heart of liberty or at the heart of freedom is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of meaning of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. And what he was saying there in, that Supreme, in this particular Supreme Court case is that to essentially be a human being or to be free was to just be able to define your own existence and do whatever pleases you. You know, and that's not necessarily all bad, right? I think of even in our like popular media, I think of like the movie Frozen where Elsa sings like, let it go, right? And the whole point is to just let it go. No, you know, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. And I can just be whoever I want to be and do whatever I want to do. And I'm not like all down on that. I think there's a place for that to a certain degree. I don't want to be like, just be a party pooper on that sort of stuff. But I think at the same time though, this sort of notion of freedom or liberty to just be able to define one's own existence and do whatever you want to do without having any sort of restrictions placed on you, is from a, a actually historical perspective, a fairly modern idea of what freedom is. For most of human history, freedom was not necessarily defined as this idea of I'm just gonna be whoever I wanna be, do whatever I wanna do, and just have no restrictions at all. In fact, Professor Patrick Deneen from the University of Notre Dame says this, throughout history, to be free, above all, was to be free from enslavement to one's own base desires, 
which, you, which could never be fulfilled, and the pursuit of which could only foster ceaseless craving and discontent. Liberty or freedom was thus the, the condition achieved by self-rule over one's appetites. The point, what he's making there is that throughout most of human history, the idea to be a free person was to be one that had sort of self-mastery or virtue, that, that lived a good life, that was free to make the right choices, to, was free to not just do whatever one's own selfish desires led them to do. That's what it meant to be free. Now, as we come to 1 Corinthians, what's kind of interesting here in chapter 9 is it seems like the church in Corinth has this idea of just do whatever pleases, or if I have the right to do it, then I'm therefore just going to go ahead and do that sort of action. Last week we talked about chapter 8, and in chapter 8, Paul's confronted with this issue where there's this disagreement within the church in Corinth about whether or not they should eat the meat that's been sacrificed to idols. That was chapter 8 last week. And Paul admonished and encouraged the church there in Corinth that, you know what, it's just because you have the right to do something, you think you have the freedom to do something, doesn't mean you just go ahead and necessarily do that thing. And Paul is going to be building on this argument here in chapter 9 as he specifically then talks about this concept of you think you have the right, you think you have the freedom? Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what it means to biblically have freedom or to biblically have rights and to think about how do we think about I have the right to do something and how does that impact then how I live? That's kind of where we're going here in chapter 9. So with that kind of floating in the back of our head, let's look at the text here starting in verse 1. Paul writes this. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? So again, remember, he's just continuing on what he was saying last week in chapter 8. He's presenting now his own sort of personal testimony of, I'm the one, I have all of these sort of freedoms, all of these sort of privileges. Like, I've, am I not free? I am an apostle. I have seen Jesus our Lord. And then he keeps going, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Meaning that Paul has labored. We know from the book of Acts, he spent a year and a half here in Corinth, laboring and serving and pastorally caring for these people. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Verse 2, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Now Paul is going to go on in verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas? Cephas is another name for Peter. So what he's probably alluding to is Peter, at one point at least, was married. And he traveled, perhaps, with his, his wife. So Paul is saying, notice all of these rhetorical questions in these opening verses. Like, I have all these rights. I am an apostle. I have seen Jesus, our Lord. I have labored extensively on your behalf. And so you would think... Corinth, church in Corinth, that I would be the one to have all of these rights. But Paul's going to, he's like, hold on a second. He keeps going in verse 6. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Barnabas was, we know from the book of Acts, someone that Paul had traveled extensively with, especially early on in a lot of Paul's journeys. Verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same thing? 
Now, what Paul's basically doing in those previous verses is he's just relating from everyday life experience in his culture, right? A soldier who labors, who works hard, they rightly get paid. Like, that's their right. A farmer who tills the crops and tills the soil, they get to the benefit and the right of reaping from that harvest. It's just a natural sort of way life works. You work, and then there's a reward for that. But then Paul kind of doubles down on this, and he begins to bring Scripture into it. Verse 9, for it is written in the law of Moses. That was a way of talking about most likely the first five books of of our Old Testament. And he's going to quote specifically from Deuteronomy. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Now, it's, it's really interesting. We don't have a ton of time to get into this. But what Paul is doing is he's taking this passage from Deuteronomy, and Jesus actually does the same thing in another part in the Gospels, and he applies this to actually uh, financial compensation for those in ministry. And he's making this point that, biblically speaking, the Scriptures are declaring from Deuteronomy that, that there is this right that Paul has to receive compensation for what he is doing in ministry as he's traveling, as he's planting churches, as he's pastorally caring for specifically these people here in Corinth. But as he goes on, verse 10, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Do you kind of see Paul's logic here? I've sowed the word of God into your life. I've taught you the way of Jesus. I've proclaimed the gospel to you. And it only makes sense, both from everyday experience and from the scriptures, that I as an apostle have the right to receive compensation for that. That's kind of where his his argument's going here. He's going to build off of it, but that's kind of the logical flow so far, all right? And then he keeps going. If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? But then look at this. This is right in the middle of verse 12. If you have your Bible, if you're taking notes, underline that word nevertheless, right there in the middle of verse 12. Nevertheless, despite all that he's talked about so far, despite him building his case the way he has, Paul says nevertheless, or maybe your translations say but. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to accept this right, but nevertheless or but, we have not made use of this right. But look at what Paul says. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle, or another translation has a stumbling block in the way of the gospel. See, it seems like in Paul's mindset, the way that Paul thinks is not just because I have the right to X means therefore Y is the logical conclusion. Just because I have the right to a particular thing or, or the power or the access or the ability to do fill in the blank doesn't necessarily mean as a follower of Jesus that's the logical conclusion or the logical next step of what I'm to do as a follower of Jesus. There, there's more at play in Paul's thinking. Paul goes on in verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to pick up what Paul's doing here, his logical argument. 
he's saying. I, I'm working for the Lord. I'm, I'm in ministry. I'm serving the church here. And it only makes sense. Like, I have this right. But Paul is using him as an example, himself as an example, to say, just because I have the right to do X doesn't mean necessarily that that's the right course of action to follow through with. Okay? If, to follow that so far. Now, here's what it gets... He goes down a layer. It gets more intense, if you will. Notice again in verse 15. Just like he said in verse 12, nevertheless, Paul uses kind of the same sort of phrase here in verse 15. But, but, I have not made use of any of these rights. Even though I have these rights. Even though that, that even scripturally speaking, I have this right Verse 15, I have not made use of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of a ground of boasting. For I've preached the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if I do not do it on my own will, I am still entrusted with stewardship." What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. See, again, Paul's just kind of building off this case here. That for Paul, what drives him is not what is my right. Paul has a deeper motivation at play. The motivation to see the good news of Jesus reach as many people as possible. So he wants to do everything that he can to not just get in the way and cause, in his language, a stumbling block for people. So Paul, in his mind, he is willing to lay aside his rights. He's willing to lay aside his privileges and what he even potentially has the right to do in order for something greater. In order for something deeper and better that, that allows more people to hear the good news of the gospel. That's why Paul says there in that, that section we just read, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For him, it's about something bigger than just himself. And I think for us, if we're honest, especially as American Western Christians, we, can, we so love that, that, yes, the truth, God does love me, yes, individually, 110%. But don't make the mistake of just reducing the gospel, reducing what Jesus is all about to just you and God. That there's something bigger at play as well, that we are invited to participate and enter into something bigger. The good news of the gospel reaching more and more people, the good news of, of who Jesus is reaching more and more people. And how this relates then is that in that process, there will be moments and spaces and places and times where we, maybe not exactly like Paul, but in our own sort of ways, will have to make those hard choices of just because I have the right to do something, does that mean it's the best thing to do? Just because I have a good reason to do something, even a morally good reason to do something, does that mean that that's the right thing to do in light of the truth of the gospel? Jesus freely giving himself, laying aside who he was as in heaven, above all, laying that aside to come and enter into our space, in our place, in our time. But Paul goes on in verse 19. I love this. This is a fairly famous little paragraph here. Verse 19. 
For though I am free from all, I have not made myself a servant, or at the same word for slave. I have not made myself a, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win more Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not my being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I have become as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Now, if there ever was a tongue twister in Scripture, that would have been it right there. Try to repeat that, you know, ten times fast. So what is Paul saying there, right? Notice what he says. He's, he's seemingly talking about to the Jewish person, someone who is, you know, has the mosaic understanding of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible in particular, and understands the the food sacrifices and all the things that were at play in the Old Testament, Paul says, I enter into that relationship. I enter into those places and spaces as as a Jew, coming, meeting them on on their terms, so to speak. And to those, Paul says, that are outside the law, those would be probably a lot of the people in the church in Corinth that don't have necessarily that Old Testament background or kind of that Jewish upbringing. Paul says with those people, I don't come with my own personal agenda or my own sort of, this is how it's supposed to be. I I meet them where they're at. To the Jew, I become a Jew. To those outside the law, I become as one outside the law. Recognizing that for Paul, this isn't like just Paul flaking out and just, you know, oh, I'm just going to cater to whatever cultural thing is happening in, in the day. Paul, in context, is doing something very specific. Michael J. Gorman, he's a brilliant A writer on the scriptures writes this. Paul's becoming all things to all people, in verse 22, does not mean that he was disingenuous or had a chameleon-like ministry. Like he was just blending in just to be cool or relevant or, or whatnot. No, no. Rather, his, quote, inconsistency was in fact his consistency. His constant or his consistent self emptying See, for Paul, what Paul's getting at here is this idea of laying aside rights, laying aside privileges, that is going to look different in different places in different spaces. So for the Jewish people, as he's interacting with with that people group, laying aside rights is going to look a certain way. For those that aren't in that category, laying aside rights is going to look different in that context. And for Paul, what Paul is encouraging the church in Corinth to do is to begin to have what he writes about in Philippians 2, the mindset of Christ, laying aside personal preferences and privileges and rights for the betterment of someone else, for the hope that someone else might come to know Jesus, that would draw closer to Jesus, that would become more like Jesus. But then verse 22, he up, Paul up, ups the ante here. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake, here's the motivation, I do it for the sake of the gospel or the good news that I might share with them in its blessing. Now notice a couple things in particular first. Notice the very beginning of verse 22. Notice, Paul, notice what Paul says. To the weak, I quote, became weak. Okay? Now compare that with what he said previously about to the Jew I became as a Jew. To the one under the law I became one as under the law. To the one outside of the law I became was 
one as outside the law. See, in those former instances with the, the, someone who was a Jew or under the law or outside of the law, Paul says, I became one as like them. But here with the weak, and this is, this is crucial, here with the weak in verse 22, Paul is saying, no, I became weak. Like I am fully identifying with the weak. Not just as the weak, I am becoming weak. Paul identifies with the weak, which is all Paul is doing at this point is just mimicking Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus did in his own life and ministry. Identify intentionally with the weak. Paul talks about this in Philippians 2. You've heard me quote this passage numerous times. But have this mindset among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that God, the Son of God, who is in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but laid aside those privileges, laid aside that right, and emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, or that's the same word for slave, and humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians 9 is he is applying that theology of Philippians 2, of the Son of God, Jesus, laying aside those privileges, laying aside those rights, and intentionally lowering himself to the weak state of a slave to serve humanity, Paul is taking that thought and that concept and applying it to his own day. Paul is taking the Jesus posture, the mindset of Christ, that doesn't hold on to what is my right, what is the thing that I've earned, the thing that I've worked for, the thing that I know I have the right to do, Paul says, no, I I lay that aside. And I intentionally, verse 22, become weak. Which is hard for us, right? It's hard for me to think about this because we live in a culture that values greatness and strength and power and charisma and rah-rah and the louder you are and the the more Instagram followers you have and the better popularity you have in the social media where all these things are what we think of as successful. It's strength that's admired. It's composure, it's charisma, it's this personality that's able to draw a crowd or that doesn't appear vulnerable. And if we're honest, our culture does not like weakness and vulnerability. Those are often a sign of, of weakness and ineptitude and the inability to achieve great things in our culture. But I just had this thought as I was just thinking about this passage at numerous points throughout this week where Paul seems to be intentionally identifying with the weak. That for us as followers of Jesus... You know, I, I know for so many of us, we long to see more of God's power in our lives. We long to see more of God's resurrection power just working in and through us, to see the Holy Spirit transform us into the people that God is calling us to be, to experience the great things that God has for us. But according to the scriptures, according to Paul's own testimony, in the next letter that he's going to write to the Corinthians, Paul says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. In that same passage in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, Therefore, I will boast in my weakness, so that what? That the power of Christ may rest upon me. 2 Corinthians 12, 10 and 11. And to think about this idea of the power of Christ resting upon us. It's this same idea with the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament, where God's Shekinah presence, God's glory would just dwell right there in the midst of his people. 
that Paul is saying that same power of God, that same power of Christ will dwell and rest upon his people when? In those moments of weakness. In those moments of raising your hand and saying, you know what, I am weak, I cannot do it. In those moments where you intentionally, when you intentionally, purposefully, and with humility say, you know what, I'm going to identify with the weak. I'm not going to hold on to my own strength, my own rights, my own privileges. And to see and to believe and to have the faith to understand that God is going to meet us in those moments. That then God's power will dwell powerfully within us. Now, as we think about this, then we might begin to, you might be going, okay, I get it. I, I, I like the theology here. I like this Jesus posture of self-emptying, of laying aside rights and privileges. I mean, it's hard, to under, it's hard to, like, you know, really get on board with it to a certain degree because we love our, you know, rights. We love our freedom. We love being able to just do whatever we want, right? That's just part of being American. We love our freedom. But on one level, you, you might think that. You might think, okay, I get it. I get what the scriptures are saying here. But what about the how? How do we live into this and become the kinds of people like Jesus and like Paul that live into this reality? Well, Paul's going to tackle this by bringing in sports, bringing in athletics. Look at what he does in verse 24. Do you not know that all, or that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises, there's a couple key words here, and this is the first one, quote, self-control in all things. They do it to receive a, perish, a, a perishable wreath, but an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, Paul says. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, notice a couple things here. It might seem like, okay, Paul was talking about rights and privileges and laying those things aside. He's kind of trying to give a Christian vision of what it means to truly be free of not just being beholden to your own desires and your own wants, but actually laying aside those things. Then now all of a sudden, Paul's talking about sports and running and boxing. Like, what, what's, the, what's the connection here, right? Now, for me, I love, I love this part. I love sports. I mean, I miss, I miss sports, especially in this time, right? I mean, it's not the same with, like, the cardboard cutouts and the, you know, the fake fan music. And, you know, as, I'm thankful for that. But it's just not the same, right? So I, I, I love this aspect. But think about what Paul's doing here. The Corinthian church, like I said in the beginning, is having this idea of what freedom is all about. Basically, I'm just going to do whatever I want. And if I have the right to do it, I mean, that's just more brownie points for me to just go ahead and do that thing. But Paul's pushing back on that. He gave, like, his own testimony in the first part here of chapter 9. But then he kind of brings in, a, in an analogy that his own hearers would understand. Because in, in the Corinthian culture, these, these ideas of sports and boxing and running in particular would have been very prevalent in, in Paul's day. And Paul is saying, you know what, Corinth? Church in Corinth, you have shelf space in your brain for this idea of discipline and restriction as a pathway to deeper fulfillment and deeper freedom. I mean, isn't that what training for athletics is all about? You have to intentionally restrict yourself, discipline yourself, in order that you might become more free at what you're doing. 
to have more grace and more kind of just the ability to be the athlete that you're going to be. If you just are a runner and you're trying to train for a marathon or a, a big race and you have the concept in your head that I'm a free runner and I'm just going to eat whatever I want and I'm just going to do whatever sort of regiment and training exercise that I'm going to do, that's not actually going to be a way and a path toward more freedom, right? To be a, a disciplined and a good runner requires just that, discipline and restricting yourself. And a work ethic that says, I'm going to say no to these things. Even though I might have the right to do them, I'm still going to say no because there's something better, there's something greater. So what Paul's doing is saying, you know what, church in Corinth, you have a category for this. You have an understanding for this. And this is no different then from the athletic realm to then the spiritual realm as we seek to follow Jesus. As we seek to become the kinds of people where we truly become free. Not free in our modern sense, in our individualistic sense, but free in the sense where I become the kind of person where my heart wants to do the right thing, where my heart wants to seek the benefit of someone else even if it costs me something, where it's not something that's forced, where it's not something that I have to do or it's a begrudging thing to do but to become the kind of person where I've been trained by the power of the Spirit, by disciplining myself to come under the teachings of Jesus that says I am free to love and to serve in a way that models the love of Christ, that's pure and genuine and other-seeking. You know, think about this just even in our own modern culture. Think about all the things that it, where you see someone who has perfected their skill and their craft in something. You know, we think about sports, right? To, to be a phenomenal basketball player requires discipline and restricting yourself to practice the mechanics in the shooting. To become a, a great hitter in baseball requires countless hours of disciplining yourself, of saying no to certain things and saying yes to key things to become the kind of baseball player where you can hit a 95-mile-an-hour baseball. Or, for, or in the arts, for example. I've seen people play piano without, like, any sheet music in front of them, and they're just, it's just like the... It's just amazing to watch some of these people just play effortlessly on the piano. And it's beautiful music. And it looks like it's, they're just riffing and they're just going for it. But they have put so much discipline and so much energy and so much focus to then become the kind of piano player that can do that. Or even think about our family just recently watched the, the, the Hamilton play on Disney+. Plus. And I was just reading a couple things about that, and the, the creator of that, the, the main writer of that, was talking about how it took him almost seven years to write that script. Seven years of discipline. Seven years of probably saying no to so many different things to perfect that script. And then now we get the benefit of that, of watching something that's just so beautiful and just so awe-inspiring and just, whoa, look at how they're just moving and the choreography and the music and all of that. My point being is that so many good things in life require discipline, require a focus, requiring a no of something in order to then become more free in something else. Now the thing is here is that this is not just about your own individual self-improvement. This is not Paul just saying, okay, you discipline yourself, you become this kind of person that is able to say no to these other things, then you'll just become this the most amazing person that's ever walked the planet. It's not just about you. Remember, 
the context is within the broader community of Jesus followers. It's about becoming the kinds of persons that can look at others and make choices where even though you might say no to your own rights, you think of what they need, what's important for them. Richard Hayes writes this in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. He writes, the self-control to which Paul is calling for is precisely the discipline of giving up privileges for the sake of others in community. This is all about saying no to certain rights and privileges for not just your own benefit, to be a, you know, a better moral person in your own eyes, but no, for the sake and the benefit of those others in the community. And if we're honest, this goes against everything in our individualistic American culture, right? Where it's all about what can I get? What can I achieve? Remember the quote I read at the beginning, all about just defining one's own meaning of existence, to define what your own desires are. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about this idea of freedom. He writes, in the language of the Bible, freedom is not something man has for himself, but something he has for others. I love that. To think about freedom not as something you just have for yourself. Rights are not something you just have for yourself, but something that you have for the benefit of others. Now, as we close, I want to just kind of lower this a little bit more, bring this down to everyday life for us here in our modern context, with kind of two basic, two basic thoughts. You know, as we're talking about this, there's, you know, a lot of biblical theology here. There's a lot of kind of cultural context stuff that Paul's doing here. It's important for us to, to see how this relates then to our own everyday life. So a couple things. The first thing is this. As we're thinking about this, I think the first point I'd want to make is this. That relationships must be stronger than rights. Relationships must be stronger than rights. What do I mean by that? Well, remember in what Paul was talking about here. He was talking about how as a Jew I became as a Jew. As to one outside the law, I became to one outside the law. To one under the law, I became one as under the law. And for Paul, there was this very much a relational piece to how Paul was doing this. I mean, he was in the trenches with people, getting to know them, getting to know their needs. And so relationships were the priority for Paul. It wasn't his rights. That's why Paul said in verse 12 and in verse 15, nevertheless, I am not taking advantage of my rights. I'm laying those aside. For Paul, the relationships were stronger than rights. You know, we've been, over the past six weeks on Sunday mornings, we've been, we just finished up this, this earlier this morning, a six-week kind of cohort class discussion time on kind of racism and all of the, the things of, of what's happening in our culture and how that intersects with being a follower of Jesus. And one of the things that we watched and listened to was a lecture from a man named Brian Stevenson. He's a phenomenal follower of Jesus, a lawyer, done an amazing work on this, kind of all the, the justice issues that are happening in our kind of culture. And one of the things that he was talking about in the lecture that we were watching was this idea of, have, of needing to be proximate with people and the importance that proximity has in moments where there's controversy. And the idea that being proximate, being with people, building relationships with people in the stickiness, in the messiness, in those moments where we might not always agree, becomes sort of this relational glue that, yes, we might still have disagreements. We might not always see things exactly the same. But you know what? The more that I've just kind of begun thinking about this, it's with the people 
that I have the strongest relationships with, that I find it not always the easiest thing, but easier to not always insist on my own way. Because I, I, I know them, and I, I love them, and I want what's best for them. And so I think, again, in the context of relationships, relationships have to be stronger than our own rights, or what we think is right. Maybe another way to phrase that is people have to be stronger than preferences. I think, again, we always have our personal preferences, our personal ideas of what we want to see happen. But the scriptures are inviting us to a whole new way of being where relationships are stronger than those personal rights. And so maybe for us this week, maybe a a question to think about, to get real practical here, to think about as we think about this idea. Think about a relationship or a friend or any sort of interaction that you have. And maybe if you have the courage this week, ask that person, are there moments and times in our relationship or in in, in our lives where I've put my rights over our relationship? Are there areas in our friendship, in our relationship, in our workplace, where I might be putting my own rights over our relationship? Where it's about me over us? You know, again, we live in a very individualistic culture. And some of this, it's like, we're, a, we're like fish swimming in an ocean, and we, just, we don't know what water is because that's just all we're used to. And I think a lot of times our individualistic mindset is like that ocean. We don't recognize how much we're swimming in that. But I think this is why it's important to pause and to take a step back and to reflect on this. Like, are there moments in our lives where we prioritize our own rights over relationship? That's the first thing to think about. The, the last thing to say as we close is that formation, the second point, formation must be stronger than freedom. Formation must be stronger than freedom. What do I mean by that? Well, think about what Paul's saying here. Paul is inviting the church in Corinth, and he's inviting by us as well to become the kinds of people who don't just tout our freedom and our rights as the most important thing about what it means to be human. Paul is saying, no, what's more important is who you are becoming in the process the kind of person you are becoming. So the question, this is important, the question isn't, can I do this, fill in the blank. The question isn't, do I have the right to do this? Rather, the question should be, who am I becoming in the process? How is this decision affecting not only myself and my own formation, but how is it affecting the formation of the broader community? How is the way that I'm living the way that I'm thinking about the world, how is it affecting not just myself, but others? And so in this sense, that's why Paul is using all of the, this language of discipline at the end of chapter 9 here, of running a race, of training, of being disciplined, having self-control. But because for Paul, what's more important in Paul's mind is not that you have the freedom to just do whatever pleases you. What's more important for Paul is the kind of person you are becoming, the formation question. Again, we live in this culture that just gives us this narrative of, quote, be true to yourself. It's this instant gratification culture. We live in it, right? Think about Amazon Prime. I'm used to having my package show up the next day. And when it doesn't show up the next day, I'm upset. Why? Because I'm used to instant. I'm used to the, the needs of the world serving me. 
But the thing is, though, formation and becoming like Jesus is not an instant thing. It's a long-term process that's full of ups and downs. And it requires what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction, a patience, a fortitude. You know, we live in this culture that says, you know, the ultimate sin is to not follow your heart. I mean, how many movies can you think of where the, the main character has, is pictured as a hero, as one who had the courage to just do what their own desires set forth to do? And that's sort of the, the paradigm and the picture of what we have in our culture of that's what a hero is to be. One who has the courage to just do whatever they want. But here comes the scriptures and say, you know what? There's actually a better way to live. Where it's not just about your own freedom or your own rights. It's about who you are becoming. And that's why I think as we think about this and as we close here, is that there is an aspect here where we're invited to practice the way of Jesus. To practice those habits of prayer and scripture reading. Of pausing throughout the day and recognizing God's goodness. Recognizing that, you know what? I can't do this on my own. That I need God's spirit to help me. And God is inviting us in as part of that process to set aside time to be with him. To set aside time to not just check my phone the first thing in the morning, but to set that time to be present to God. To learn what it means to live in community. To practice the habits in the way of Jesus together. And in that process, here's the thing. In that process, as we become more like Jesus, Jesus himself said, if anyone wants to follow me, they are to what? Take up their cross daily and follow me. And this is hard, again, because this cuts against the grain of our freedom, I want to do whatever I want sort of culture. And to be a part of the family of Jesus is to be a community that we're all doing our part to lay aside our rights and privileges, to dying to our own selfish desires, Dying to our own needs and wants to say, you know what, God, resurrect a new way in me. Bring about a new way where I might seek the benefit of others. You know, with that, I want to invite the worship team to come up. And as we close here, it's important again to just recognize that through the midst of all of this, that God is with us, that God is for us, that this is a process for sure. And that for many of us, we're all on this journey of what it means to be a, a people that, you know what, we're not just going to cater to my own individual wants or desires. But like Paul, we can say, you know what, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You know, I think we all love the idea of Christ dying for us. We get that. We get that Christ has died in my place for our sins. Most of us do. But I think for a lot of us, there's a challenge to recognize, you know what, that not only has Christ died for me, but there's a daily call to die with Christ in a sense, to lay aside those rights and privileges. And then we become the kinds of people where Paul says in Galatians 5, you know what, brothers and sisters, for you were called to freedom, but do not use that freedom as an opportunity to serve your own flesh, but rather to love each other, to love your neighbor. And so that's what God's calling us to, to be the kinds of people where we recognize true freedom is found in the self-emptying, self-giving love of Christ. And may God fill us with that love this morning.
God, would you help us to be the kinds of people who don't just hold on to what we think is best or what we think is good. But you, God, would form us into the kinds of people. You would shape us and transform us from the inside out to have the desires of our heart be your desires. And that when we see conflict or we see strife or when we see problems in our world, God, it wouldn't be about my own personal preferences. But God, with humility that we would learn and that we would grow in what it means to love and serve those around us. God, we love you. God, thank you for this time. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.